Welcome back to EnterTheRealWorld.com. This is the Will Be Movies, a podcast where we look at 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade, volume 1, 2000 to 2009. This is episode 17. We are doing super bad. My name is Matt Waters. I'm joined for this as always by Ben Phillips, who in no way resents Superbad's placement on the list. I don't <laughs> resent it. It's definitely an important <laughs> movie to discuss in kind of, kind of the context of like where comedy was at this point. Like at least we're not doing the fucking hangover. No. Oh god, no. So yes, you will probably be able to guess from these comments that this was a selection made entirely by me. Uh, we got a certain number of picks each unchallenged. If you want to hear all the rules and blah blah blah, episode zero is on the website on the show page and also at the top of the playlist on uh, Mike and Matt on SoundCloud and all that good stuff. I won't lie, a partial reason why I thought it would be good to include this is I went to film school and I, at dissertation time, decided to write a lovely 10,000 word, uh, as Americans would call it, thesis, but we're going to go with dissertation, called Bromance, the Representation of Masculinity in Contemporary Hollywood Comedy. And it's really bad. I was sitting pretty on a plus 70 average, which would guarantee you a first class degree. And uh, this thing was so bad that I whipped up in about eight days, just before the deadline, rather than the like nine months they give you to write it. And it knocked me right down <laughs> into a uh, into the high 60s. And you know, I'm not gonna, it's like snobby to be like, oh, this is a bad grade. But you know, I'm just saying my entire grade was changed by how bad my dissertation was. And a, uh, a chapter is devoted to super bad. And I thought, hey, look at this unique, like, thing that I have that pairs nicely with this movie. But I do sincerely think that this was very important for comedy. And, you know, we we have a lot of a certain type of film on this list. And I don't think we're going to flood these things with comedies. But I... And there probably is another comedy somewhere on the list that I'm just blanking on right now. But oh, just, we have two... We have two... Three straight comedies coming up. Yeah. I just thought, let's inject some haha into our list. Because there are many types of film. And one we're completely neglecting is, of course, superhero movies. Because we've done that to death on this website. But I thought, hey, let's get this in here. I'd also like us to have some more animated stuff in some of the other decades. But that may be difficult. Given what other podcasts we're planning to do. But... Yeah, I mean, we, we the, the decision was made to basically strip out all the best animated films this decade and <laughs> do them as another mini-series, which yeah. will come at some point down the line. Yeah. I uh, literally watched Howl's Moving Cars before this podcast, which is not a movie I would have suggested for this podcast, but... Look, you had your chance to get Spirit Away or Howl's Moving Castle onto a list, and you decided to come up with some crazy rules that would package it in with another one. But anyway, so this is directed by Greg Matola. Now... We had a rule, as explained in episode zero, anything that's already been covered on the site is disqualified. I would have one million percent put Adventureland into my list as it, depending on what day of the week you ask me, it might be my favourite movie, which is weird, and I acknowledge that, but it is. So that's that's disqualified. He is mostly otherwise this decade known for his work on TV with Undeclared and Arrested Development, which makes sense when you consider his combined cast available to him here, but written by Evan Goldberg and Seth Rogen. This is their debut feature film script but it would of course be followed up by a fucking landslide of them with you know like Pineapple Express and Green Hornet The Watch this is the end the interview on and on and on and on and on uh, those aren't even <laughs> Incl- include, including two TV shows based on comic books yes The Boys 
very good. I haven't seen Preacher. I hear it's good or get. I liked the first season. I've not really watched more than that, but it's yeah, it's, it's what it is. <laughs> so released August two thousand seven in the US, September two thousand seven in the UK. We were saying before we came on air that like we have a bit of an age difference. So for you, it was like the big film everyone was talking about coming back off school break. This for me, I saw just before heading off to college, uh, university, and yeah, it is very being of the age that they're going for here. I think helped me identify with it quite a lot because I mean you know we've seen all the the big teen comedies over the decades and they are generally feature like 30 year olds trying to play 16 and it's a very sort of melodramatic version of being a teenager and I'm not saying this feels 1000% authentic but it certainly helps that Sarah and Mince Platt are were like 17 and 18 and Jonah Hill was older at 23 but he could sort of part you know he's closer than I feel some of the people in like a John Hughes movie were. Knowing that it came from the actual experiences of Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, it felt a lot more grounded and I, I probably have made some very outrageous claims that like this is the first thing to do this, but it felt like one of the biggest mainstream sort of teen comedies to attempt to not just be completely wacky. And there is some wacky stuff in there, but like I always like that about it and uh, I think that contributed to its popularity, to be honest. Speaking of popularity and this sort of wave of comedy, <laughs> One of the key producers is, of course, Judd Apatow, and we've discussed... We've already done, like, the biggest moneymakers, we've done the biggest critically acclaimed movies of 2007, but because we're here a lot, we're not going to do the whole everything we do, so we thought for this one it would be fun for you to sort of give us a bit of a breakdown on how Apatowian movies had performed and, like, the rise of Judd Apatow as a producer and, and writer and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously he spent the 90s kind of, like, tinkering around in TV. He was one of the co-creators on The Ben Stiller Show, which mm. is one of those weird like only around 13 episodes but like you look at it nowadays and it's just packed full of like talent that would go on to be huge in the next couple of years like I think the writer's room is notorious for being like one of the most stacked writer's rooms of all time it's like David Cross Bob Odenkirk like, Dan Harmon lots, yeah Dan Harmon uh, Dino Stam uh, I can't even pronounce his name Dino, Dino Stamopoulos <laughs> he moved on to the Larry Sanders show he worked on The Critic and then most notably in 1999 he made the one season wonder show Freaks and Geeks with Paul Feig, which is one of the kind of great all-time one-season shows and is very well known for launching the career of James Franco, Seth Rogen, Jason Segel, Busy Phillips, John Francis Daly, Martin Starr, and Linda Cardellini, including a whole mess of other people kind of like below the line as well. Yeah. <laughs> and then they would go back together and make Undeclared a couple of years later. I really want to see also Undeclared. start the career of Jake Baruchel. <laughs> Undeclared is really good. I've seen all of Freaks and Geeks and, you know, I really like it. And I just, I think for a long time Undeclared was quite hard to get hold of. And I, I can probably find it now via some combination of Amazon Prime and Netflix and all that. But yeah, I, I had always like sought out Undeclared and never actually seen it. Yeah, like it, it, it's the show they made afterwards. It's kind of like almost like a sequel in that it's modern day set college comedy. They're kind of hamstrung by it being a network show. So kind of they can't do the full kind of like college experience that they want to do. But it is <laughs> where I think, I think Greg Mattel starts directing for this kind of group of people around then um, Seth Rogen starts to write stuff it's where um, I think like Nicholas Stoller and Jennifer, Co- Jennifer Connor kind of come aboard mm-hmm. and obviously she like they would go on to make other movies that are produced by these guys Jennifer Connor would go on to work on girls as well everything kind of becomes quite knotted at this early point of his so, career and then uh, after Undeclared gets cancelled after one season as well he makes the move over to movies which and is good because this is there will be movies so yes uh, and then in 2004 
four, he produces and commands the Legend of Ron Burgundy. I don't think he was like, I mean, that's still kind of like Adam McKay, Will Ferrell joint more than Judd Apatow, but obviously he is a producer on it. And it's kind of like the start of that wave of what you can define as like Judd Apatowian in that it's very much star driven by funny people who just riff and kind of like improvise on set and they'll do take after take after take and then just take whatever the best one is and whilst there is a plot it's very much based on kind of the chemistry between these actors and then riffing on just kind of like funny stuff for sure and like it starts off like in this era it's dominated by you know Will Ferrell the Wilsons Paul Rudd like all all these kind of people and then it it will transition over to the like Rogan and Apatow's like crew but yeah that little group dominated Vince Vaughn you know all these people like the cast of old school like, like, like the, yeah, it was like that was kind of like the era beforehand, which is like where you get like old school, as you say, and it's kind of more. I don't know. I don't want to say like structured, but definitely kind of like a bit tighter oh, it's, than these it's, movies. It's more like playing by the rules of a studio rather than like I feel like a da- uh, like uh, the trademark of a Judd Apatow film is just like I don't know. Let's shoot like literally all day and have like a mile of film and just just fuck around with it. <laughs> and then I think what most notably like the breakout performance in Anchorman is probably Steve Carell. I think it's still the most quotable lines on that entire. Movie movie and then he would go on in to start in the office just before 40 year old virgin but in the summer break in between offices season one office season two a little movie called 40 year old virgin comes out which is jack patel's uh, film debut uh, as as a director and i think like that is really kind of the start of like his career as a producer like it i think it's still worldwide it's still his third highest grossing movie it, and it was such like a jolt in the arm like this propelled steve carell into like the mainstream it made everyone real like it actually fixed the office where the writers <laughs> on the office turned around and said like oh this is what this guy can do we shouldn't be making him do knock off Ricky Gervais and after that like Judd Apatow became a brand name like almost overnight really I mean the movie only made about 67 million dollars at the US box office but it's still this kind of start point and like if, if we were to do another movie from this kind of like group of movies it probably would have been Bought Your Old Virgin but yeah it, it made a huge amount of money off of a very small budget and then it would just go on and on so Knocked Up comes in 2007 which is his directorial follow up Superbad is probably one of the first kind of like big cashier movies where I think it is credited in the trailer as being like from the producer of Bought Your Old Virgin and Knocked Up and then for the rest of the decade it's kind of of just like almost every comedy movie that comes out has like a produced by Judd Apatow credit on it like Walk Hard Robert Taylor Forgetting Sarah Marshall Don't Mess With the Zohan Step Brothers Pineapple Express Year One Funny People Get Into the Greek Bridesmaids and like, some of these he has only like very partial involvement with but his name carries such weight in the world of this sort of adult comedy that they slap that name on there and it probably does bump ticket sales a little bit I mean it's interesting because like the kind of the, the big ones if you were looking at like what he's produced it's Bridesmaids it's Knocked Up it's Fortune virgin so his his first two directorial efforts bridesmaid was easily the breakout of kind of like the 21st century it's still probably held up as the kind of like the big breakout one from all of them and then Superbad yeah. kind of like rounds off that kind of group well it is much shorter than zodiac at 113 <laughs> minutes you said that you found watching it to be a longer you sort of felt the passage of time more than you did with zodiac and i think you're crazy but hey hi tiny 20 million dollar budget took in 170 million which 
much pretty good for a sort of teen leaning comedy with no real stars attached again like Jonah Hill is the highest credited person and Bill Hader and and is yet to be a bigger name I think like you know Bill I feel Bill Hader his face is in was in so many movies that so many people know but no one really knew him by name for several years I, mean, I think the thing was was he was on SNL and so he didn't have he had the time to go off and do these little supporting roles in a lot of movies but yeah. he was still very much tied into his SNL contract and so he doesn't really get a leading role in anything really until Skeleton Twins down. maybe yeah but that was probably done in like the off season in between things he's yeah. a train wreck probably his like first uh, big yeah. I fe- yeah yeah I think that was quite big for him and then obviously you know more recently he's left and gone on success with things like Barry and he is the leading Cloudy Chance Meatballs as well <laughs> sure I mean um, yeah, it's not his face but like it is probably yeah. quite a big deal in terms of that. His, his, he is the lead voice in that movie but yeah a nice inexpensive comedy um, and Seth Rogen's not really commanding a big salary yet and also if he's like <laughs> one of the writers I doubt he's gonna like try and stick the studio for more money here it's a very easy one to explain how it came about because they wrote this when they were 13 did Evan Goldberg and Seth Rogen hence the two main characters having their names and it took them a very long time to actually get it made so by the time they were in a position to actually do it Seth was of course deemed to be too old to play a high school level person Matola you know I I said how he worked in Undeclared during Undeclared uh, the production of it all throughout they would do table reads of drafts of Superbad and you would have Seth reading as Seth and Jason and Siegel, I think, was the part of Evan, but everyone involved was too old by the time it came around. Including, so Jonah Hill from like the jump was like, hey, I want to play Seth. And they were like, well, no, you're only two years younger than Seth. That doesn't make any fucking sense. And it's crazy to me that he is only two years younger than him. But he, sure enough, you know, was able to age himself down. Like, I would imagine he was constantly shaving and stuff like that. But I think, you know, he's older than them, but it's not like comically so. Like, it could be in the sort of 80s and 90s with these teen movies and of course you know that led to them writing in the cop characters so that Seth Rogen could still be in it. Jennifer Lawrence was looked out for Jules but Emma Stone gets her first movie role instead beats her out. The script made the Hollywood blacklist and uh, the the test screenings and sort of pre-release buzz was so good that a couple of Judd Apatow movies that came out before this, I think it was Joel Bett Taylor and possibly Walk Hard, they said from the producer of Superbad which hadn't even come out yet. So it was getting quite a lot of buzz before it came out but for me it really just kind of came out of nowhere. It's just like yeah this movie Superbad's out you should see it and I did and it was great <laughs> so we start with Seth and Evan heading to school they discuss porn they discuss the girls they have a crush on all kinds of stuff and I think it's not a huge amount of plot but that's not a very plotty movie I think right from the jump doing the whole like talking about porn which is something you would expect from a teen movie but then like having them talk about it in a far more elaborate way like having it as like a very frank discussion and not being like ooh sex but just sort of like talking about like the value prospect and 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 I don't know it was just I think it sort of establishes the tone really well straight away and like how they pair this discuss- you know they name drop like Orson Welles and the Beatles in, in this whole section so it's sort of like you're getting both ends of it where it's like hey they're sex obsessed and they're trying to find the best porn but then also like they're not idiots like they have some form of culture to and I'm not saying Orson Welles and the Beatles are like really niche things to know about but it's not the kind of thing you would see a teenage character saying on film before this I don't think yeah I mean I, I think the first, this opening 
scene kind of does nail the tone of the movie really, really quickly. I don't think it's aged particularly well in terms of just how it's discussed, in terms of not not necessarily the content, but just kind of like the way it's discussed, because mm. um, it feels like it is coming from the mind of a 13-year-old, yes. as opposed to someone who's got some hindsight and some like regrets, which I think is kind of my main sticking point in the movie, is that it is, you can see that like they haven't done a like, to-the-floor rewrite of this movie with the hindsight of no, being... Yeah. There's definitely stuff that like they just are so attached to from years previous, and it's like, I mean, maybe they're doing... No, because I guess uh, there's nothing in the movie to suggest it is set before 2007, but yeah, some of it, it's like, this isn't what porn is like anymore, guys, but okay. But yeah, just, I, I like the way that they, they sort of try and establish everything through that. And Yeah, and I, I like the way that kind of, like, it's done with them on the phone, which, yeah. uh, I mean, obviously big no-no nowadays, <laughs> do not be on your phone whilst driving. It's, it's still legal in America, isn't it? Oh, God. I change your laws, America. I know, well, change all of them. Maybe don't start with that one, but do do make sure you get that one while you're changing them. Uh, you also um, get, you know, like they establish that Seth is the crude one because, uh, and and Evan is more timid because you know Michael Cera, that's his entire persona. Like he is this low energy sort of meek boy. You see that like when Evan is he says goodbye to Becca and they're like going in the same direction but he's just he's already committed to saying goodbye so he like speeds up to get away from her it's like yeah. that feels very true to life no, I mean like all of it feels like so very true to life like I love that they're on the phone and then he pulls up in front of the house and they're still on the phone to each other and yeah. then they hang up and just continue the same conversation they yeah. were having I love the way that they do that thing where like it's fake friend nice yes. where when his mum comes outside it's like the most civil conversation in the world and then the moment <laughs> mum disappears it becomes like so jealous you got a suck on her titty and then he immediately like comes back and goes with like well at least you gotta suck your dad's dick <laughs> and it's just like it, it's a level of crude that nails the emotional beats of being a 17 year old even if and I don't know if it's like part of me going like oh no I knew people like this and so yeah. I'm reflexively cringing from the fact that I'm a decade older than I was or 12 years older than I was when I saw this movie and part of me is kind of like oh god I hope I wasn't I think it's a lot that. like when we did Shaun of the Dead and I said that the Ed character like I was like oh god so many people were like this and I think the Seth character is that way as well where it's just everything coming out of his mouth is like dicks and vaginas and all sorts of stuff like that it, it feels like a level more immature though in that it's it's kind of the in-betweeners way but maybe not as kind of explicit that it's the joke where like on in-betweeners uh, Jay is obviously like <laughs> bragging all the time about how good he is at sex but you can tell that he's got no fucking clue how sex is and part yeah. of the joke is like him listing sex acts and not listing them correctly Yes, and, and I think that that's what makes I don't even want to say that character works better because in between is it still wants you to find them endearing mm. but like it's kind of very similar to this where like it's a very 17 year old boy whose only access to like sex and girls is porn on the internet yeah. and it yeah. kind of like make every single heartbeat of piece of my body was just kind of going like oh my god we need comprehensive sex education in schools because <laughs> it stops this kind of thing absolutely which is, my, which is my own personal bugbear which is just like oh my god we actually let teenage boys go out there and like learn about this shit from movies and pornography rather than actually having like frank conversations with people about like what this all means and yeah, what's like, right his, and what's not. His entire plan throughout the movie is just like he has to get a girlfriend so he can practice sex so he can be good at it when he goes to college and it's all just you know if I like go down on her for like seven hours she'll want to go out with me and just you know this all very like yeah like you said it's like the teenage version. Um, you mentioned like when the mother comes outside and I think obviously you can't escape from all the like the haha jokes but like for me the like the heart of the movie is the Seth Evan relationship and when she's like oh I bet you're gonna miss each other when you 
go to college and they're sort of having this like competition about who's gonna miss the other one the least it's like why would we miss each other blah 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 that's the stuff that i think makes this more than just this is what the big comedy this summer like i think this is what gives it some staying power is like for me it's all about the ending to be honest and everything that happens before that it's just like oh cool that's quite funny but yeah they established this here like the discomfort between them of like displaying emotions and all these cliches but it's important they get it in there I think again it's a similar reason why Sean the Dead still works so much later is because it is fundamentally that kind of like as you say bromance relationship where the kind of like semi-romantic feelings between men that aren't necessarily romantic actually be given time and not being kind of like veered away from as being homophobic the fact that the fact that this movie ends with the two of them like nestled up in sleeping bags next to each other kind of spooning each other is really sweet yes. and i think comes from a place of being like from obviously two writers who probably had a tough time in high school if this is based on their school careers where they weren't invited to the parties where they had their own view of like what they had to be to be cool or what they had to do to kind of like interact with women but because of that they have this incredible bond between the two of them that kind of like buoys them up yes through what is probably like quite a, a terrible time in their lives i would imagine well they can so you know yeah <laughs> I, I also must i also must imagine that like do, do we reckon that like Seth and Evan were like massive weed heads at high school or do you reckon it came later? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they talk about how they were, they were 14. Like, these experiences are based on when they're 14 not like 17 or 18 or whatever. And like, Yeah, obviously, obviously they age up to be like they're going off to college. So like... Yeah. But like the like the party scene, they it was even more extreme. Like, it was like bodybuilders and, and stuff doing like cocaine and they, it's tamer in the movie for sure. But like, yeah, I mean, I think they're around a lot of wild shit and like they went to a lot of stand-up comedy and got to go backstage and stuff so i wouldn't be shocked if they were doing the drugs to sound incredibly white there um, no I'm, i mean i'm just saying because obviously like seth rogan's entire aesthetic post this movie is he is the oh, just captain weed yes <laughs> captain yeah he is he is the pot guy he wrote pineapple express which yeah. is literally named after a strain of weed i don't think he has a movie that is r-rated where he doesn't smoke weed at some point in it Loves except it. for maybe this one he writes in rants about people saying how good weed is and but you don't really see much of that here I, like they, they don't seem uh, that's, 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 that's my thing is because like um, and this is kind of like American versus or American South Canadian differences between UK differences where because weed is harder to get hold of mm. it is the less prevalent kind of drug at parties it's very much like UK culture has been shrinking before you turn 18 yes. whereas I feel like uh, where I feel like an American like it's quite probable that like an American's first experience with either alcohol or weed would be weed more so yeah. than alcohol yeah we drink real early the americans are like <laughs> tiny little coward babies when it comes to alcohol oh have you seen have you seen this thing going around the internet at the moment with the kind of like i can't remember what's it what's called iced them where like if someone walks up to you with a with a smell of ice and hands it to you you don't have a smell of ice you have to down it in front of them <laughs> it's a thing in america not a thing in the uk and like it went viral with like a, a lesbian couple like doing it on their first date okay. and every single comment from british people's just like the fuck this is like <laughs> pre pre drinks this is what you do like on your way home from the supermarket yeah Oh, Jesus. I can't believe they're drinking ages 21. I know I'm the first person to ever express that opinion, but it's like, good lord. We that. get a drink through college, people. Yeah, I know. Imagine. Part of establishing the whole Seth is Seth and Evan is Evan thing, you see them in the, the home ec class, and, you know, Michael Sear is having a nice, fun, silly time. A very wholesome time with his friend. And then what, is, what is that guy's name? They mentioned Maroki? his name a couple of times. His name's, not on the, his name's not on Wikipedia, and this depresses me, because I need to find out what this guy's done since. Oh, no. He's just... 
really adorable. It doesn't say anything. No. <laughs> and yet he could repeatedly shows up in the movie. So they're having this nice wholesome time, and then, you know, Jonah Hill is, like, doing sex gestures behind Emma Stone, and she is, of course, Emma Stone right from the jump. There is a reason she became a massive star. She is an extremely charming individual. She, her character Jules, invites Seth to her party, and the stars have aligned because in walks their friend Fogel, who announces he's getting a fake ID, and uh, they promise to get Jules and Becca alcohol and think, yeah, we're gonna get laid if we bring them the booze. Uh, so Christopher Mintz Platz was, like, 17, legit, and not a great deal of acting experience, and was just improvising because he didn't really know what to do, more than, like, he has the clout and experience to start improving. and I think Jonah Hill legitimately doesn't like him, <laughs> but hey, that's fun, because that's how the characters are in this. Have they ever worked together since? Uh, this is the end, they have the three of them standing there as, like, a little, uh, uh... reunion Oh, and and how train dragon? Sure. Also, yeah. also, so the actor's name is Roger Iwami, who played Maroki. It is his only acting credit. There you go. Maybe he was just like at the school that they fucking <laughs> was shooting in. I don't know. So there's a bit here where I think it may be time to read from my dissertation. <laughs> Oh, God. I've got up, like, Emma Stone's performances before Superbad, because this is her first film role. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's got some TV, including Drive, the TV show. Right. Which was Nathan Fillion's follow-up to Firefly. <sighs> <laughs> which is a show made by Tim Minear, who you may remember from, from being on Firefly. It got cancelled after seven episodes. Sorry, six episodes. And it's just a show where you have to drive across America. Oh. Well, it's good that but that, it's, that it's wasn't the biggest show in the world, so she was available for this. The cast is really good, though. It's yeah. like Kevin Alejandro, Dylan Baker, Emma Stone, Taryn Manning, Melanie Linsky, Amy Acker's in the show, Kate Finneran. Well, there you go. Sorry, Emma Stone, that that didn't work out for you, but a good thing you landed on your feet. Yeah. They're in the cafeteria, and you get Seth saying, oh, I do disgusting things to get with Jules. And then Evan fires back with like, yeah, I'd I'd give my right nut to date Becca. And like, establishing this difference between them. Do you want me to mute myself so I no, don't laugh too much? No, it's fine. It's fine. I know what it is. During the discussion of Becca and Seth's would-be paramour Jules in the cafeteria, Seth remarks on shameful, disgusting things he would do to sleep with Jules, while Evan matches his sentiments but replaces the idea of having sex with that of a long-term relationship. Teen culture archetypically tries to convert the Evans of the world into Seth, as Pasco points out. I'd already established Pasco, so we're just last naming them here. Adolescent males assert their masculine selves by engaging in heterosexual discussions of girls' bodies and their own sexual experiences. Ironically, by the film's end, Seth has almost become Evan as the sincere and non-sexual approach gets him further with Jules than any of his sex-based plans did, though we learn of the fate of neither couple, or indeed if they actually become a couple. There you go, there's a small excerpt, we'll go back to that at some point, but in all sincerity, I do think it is a very effective and sort of true-to-life discussion. Like, everyone knows a ton of guys and possibly even themselves have said things to the effect of what Seth is saying, but like, I have also personally, have been Evan here, where, like, I've said something like, oh, yeah, that girl had a really nice personality, and my friend was like, dude, like, we're talking about boobs here. <laughs> and they're, they're both being very true to type. This is, you wouldn't expect Michael Cera to be vulgar, and, like, that becomes a joke in of itself in his later career when he does start 
saying all these like thing is he's still pretty vulgar here like if you're coming from arrested development in mm. which i mean obviously like the jokes are all related to how he wants to have sex with his cousin and it's pretty omnipresent at this point but like it still is a big jump between arrested development being made for tv and then superbad opens and first scene is him discussing pornography and it's in that way where like you can tell it's maybe vaguely begrudging where it's like he's just kind of like i can't understand why you want to sign up to this porn website but like you're my friend and this is just an avenue of conversation that i kind of have to put up with even <laughs> if i'm not as omnipresently horny as you are it just feels like he's like playing at being like when they look at the porn mag and like seth's like oh my god look at those and evan's just like look at those nipples and it's just like that doesn't feel like what you should have said there but it feels like what someone who's trying to like fit in would say i don't know would you like another excerpt yes you would when it comes to dealing with their respective crushes the boys opposing stances towards women and what it means to be a man initially provide decidedly opposite results where seth plays a provider bringing alcohol for everyone at the party his masculinity strengthened evan finds himself unable to protect the drink he promised to bring becca from harm weakening his status as a man in the process even at their young age the boys are following one of the most primal codes that of the man as hunter and gatherer although they refer to this with the updated lexicon calling and providing alcohol for the girls pimp totally pimp i wrote that and a thing i submitted to be marked by professionals that was real bad the first one like made a point that i agreed with the second one is like ooh. <laughs> they are talking about it like hey if i bring them stuff they'll sleep with look i could go through this now and make it passable it's just ugh. uh this is i also... think you should i think we've got a couple of weeks until this episode goes up you want me to rewrite doing... my fucking dissertation instead of editing like three podcast episodes yeah sure go for it uh this is also where you get the whole dick drawing thing that really this feels like this is for an audience of one although it is of course a very you know it made a lot of people laugh but this is very much just Seth and Evan just trying to like make each other laugh and like this and the McLovin thing which we'll get into in a bit it's like that these took on the biggest life of the movie considering all I feel I feel like McLovin has had the longer life oh yeah for sure for sure but like the the dicks is a very very kind of like one note joke that is really good and who's the artist that drew them or was it just it like was the entire cast of crew evan goldberg's brother david <laughs> each and every single penis had to be approved by legal and they would be like this one has to be less veiny this one has to be less hairy this is sort of similar to edgar wright's brother being the person who does a lot of the kind of like art for <laughs> those movies yes it's exactly like that equally as artistic they had to jump through so many like legal loopholes here like the actress playing the younger version of becca she is holding the actual actress is holding a completely different drawing and then when you see the close-up of it, it's actually a woman who just has very tiny hands <laughs> holding it. The kind of stuff that they had to get through the MPAA. It's like, was it worth it, guys? Just to be like, yeah, I couldn't stop drawing dicks. This won't come up as a plot point ever again. But hey, it's funny. So my partner has not seen this movie. Really? She wanted to watch this with me, but she was out on the night that I needed to watch it. So I was watching it on my own. And she came, came in during that bit and was like, <laughs> oh, never mind. Yeah, pretty much. Brilliant. Did you in any way attempt to tell her, oh, I promise the rest of it is slightly more grown up? I don't think she came in during this bit. I think she came in during the end credit scene where the credits are just... Oh, you just see all of them. Oh, speaking of credit scenes, the open credits with them dancing around. 
wonderful. So, so this actually is a nice, decent, like, kind of, like, jumping off point. So this movie is really weird. That scene opens the movie with them kind of dancing and stuff like that, and it feels so 70s. And they get the old style, is it Sony Columbia? The Yeah, it's yeah. the old style Sony Columbia thing. They're all wearing clothes that would not feel out of place in the 1970s, and it gives the movie this kind of, like, weird, timeless quality. I love like, the soundtrack. Still... It's just very funny, like, seeing it juxtaposed to these guys who are, like, just sort of low-energy, modern, geeky teens, and it's, like, and here's all this like soul music and stuff yeah and like if you watch the trailers you could be easily be mistaken that it's a period piece yeah but then at point they break out a mobile phone yeah so the three head to a liquor store and uh, Fogel's ID appears to work, but then the store is robbed and he finds himself sidelined for pretty much the rest of the movie with this pair of cops. Now, before they get there, you get this scene where Seth is considering stealing beer from a supermarket where Fogel works, and I, I really like Jonah Hill's, like, enthusiasm in these little fantasy sequences where, like, the old lady's like, enjoy fucking jewels, and he's like, I will! I don't, I don't know, like, it's a silly little aside that just pads out the length of the movie probably but he's a good performer I think and like he'll go on to do like far more like big boy acting but like you mean you mean two time Oscar nominee Jonah Hill hell yeah I do he is the lead of the movie in theory and maybe more of our like emotional investment is probably in Evan but I, I think Seth is kind of I think they're asking him Jonah to wear more hats I th- I th- I'd be interested to hear it break down whether or not Jonah Hill does have more screen time than Michael Sarah because obviously like Jonah Hill's career takes off in a more interesting way than Michael Sarah's like because obviously he struggles for a few years after Superbad I feel he still does um, oh it's like the like, babysitter and stuff like that well, I think that I, I think I remember that movie is like something that got sat on for a while but like before this he's like the the older version of Adam Sandler's son in Click and like a couple of walk-on roles in like 40 Year Old Virgin and he's and like knocked almost up and stuff. unrecognizable in 40 Year Old but like he doesn't he doesn't have like a starring role in a movie really until get him to the greek yeah probably again like after this it takes it takes three years for them to like figure out that he needs to do that and then even after that like it's not until moneyball 21 jump street i think yeah um, i think establishing himself as an actual actor it is what actually helped him break because yeah he's a funny guy but it's like like you said he was really struggling to land decent roles i think yeah because like michael, michael Sarah kind of like after this movie he's kind of like the issue with michael Sarah is michael Sarah got typecast as himself where he does because 2007, he's got these two huge roles for him. He's coming off Rest of Elmer, which is this kind of, like, big cult comedy. But then every single role he does after this for quite a while is, like, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, Paper yeah. Heart, Year One, Youth and Revolt, Scott Pilgrim. And they're all very much playing to a type. And, and then you his know, career it, kind of, like, yeah. falters. Like, he, he falters a lot harder than Jonah Hill. But Jonah Hill's hardly, like, doing interesting stuff now. Yeah. I mean, like, he he did mid-90s last year, which I've heard okay things I've about. I've heard it's good, yeah. Uh, I didn't finish Maniac, but that seemed like that's quite good. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, he might be playing a Batman villain. <laughs> Who knows? He might be playing a Batman villain. Yeah, and like uh, you, you saw Michael Cera like, make a conscious effort to like break from that typecasting because like Arrested Development Series 4, like he gets I think he's like one of the main writers on it. And like, yeah, and like he he you can see him trying to like re-establish George Michael from not just awkward, but to like thinking like trying to assert himself but in a sort of failing way. And then you're to see him in stuff like this is the end where he's just cursing and getting blowjobs and doing cocaine and stuff but I don't know how he's much he's not getting a blowjob he's getting a rusty trombone oh okay sorry 
Sorry, sorry. That's the whole joke, is it's like the, the depraved sex act. Yes, <sighs> okay. But anyway, this uh, I don't know is, how much is good worked. fun. It is. I don't know how much his rebrand work. He's one of the few actors from Arrested Development who I'm not pissed off at nowadays. Yeah, I guess there's that. Like, the, the, the younger ones, basically. <laughs> I mean, Elliot Shawcat's got a great TV show. Um, I like Will Arnett when he does voice roles more than he does live action he's stuff nowadays. He's always had a very funny wo- voice, so yeah. I feel he got too famous and now he's become a bit of an asshole. Anyway... <laughs> Also, like, when you see Fogel go in and, like, he grabs the beer or, like, he drops some beer on the floor and it, like, is going everywhere and, like, the guy working there is like, oh, did you do this? He's like, nope. And then he, like, walks off and he says, fuck my life. And I don't know if this was the first time that anyone had said fuck my life on screen, but certainly this was the first time I heard it and fuck my life and FML became a very big thing after this. And again, I'm not going to say that they made that up, but I feel it took on a big life from here. As did the cock blocking potentially. I feel like a lot of people I knew had never heard that term before and then when they say it at the end it it became huge. Anyway, McLovin. This is like how Rick and Morty's like biggest episode is Get Swifty, how all the merchandise is is around Get Swifty. That is the worst episode of Rick and Morty in my opinion by a long way and that the legacy of this movie is McLovin which, you know, it was kind of funny but like to this day you can buy t-shirts with that driving license on them and just dumb shit like that it's like if people are gonna latch onto what they're gonna latch onto who am i to tell you not to but it's just a bit sad in my opinion. the thing is it, it, it's one of those things where not the problem with avatar movies but they do lack kind of like mimetic or kind of structured humor with like callbacks and stuff like that by like just by virtue of them being so very hangouty and so very kind of like improvised on set and stuff like that um the few moments that you can tell where they are more scripted and more have to have to have a structure around them kind of like stand out a bit more I feel so like this moment is kind of like one of the few points where I'm sure they they don't have like 16 different versions of it sat somewhere <laughs> on a shelf yeah. it's like just it's, it's McLovin the the paper like every reaction to them reading the McLovin driving license is like a different take on something yeah. where it's like McLovin the 25 year old organ donor from Hawaii yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just like an inherently bizarre thing that obviously has to be scripted because they have to make the fucking driving license yeah this is where Seth Rogen and Bill Hader come in as our two cops we'll talk about them in a second because like i've bunched everything they do with mclovin into one little talking point but i don't think the movie was struggling in any way but i just it made me think of when you said recently that like when you saw lion king and when you saw aladdin like there's a marked improvement when seth rogan and will smith enter those respective movies and it's like he's probably the biggest thing he's probably the biggest star they have in this and he's still just getting his career started really because uh, knocked up was only a few months before this wasn't it yeah yeah. It, it really isn't that long beforehand. But I, I think they arrive and they do inject some energy into it. And yeah, we'll get into the more negative <laughs> sides of that in a second. But yeah, I, I think that they are very funny here. And like, Bill Hader has been a fucking treasure in front of people's eyes for so long. And I'm so glad that his career is like seemingly really taking off now. Uh, but he's been. Barry, there. it's a good show. <laughs> so I hear. But yeah. Um, so after a stranger, Joe Latrulio. Boyle hits Seth with his car. He agrees to take them to a party to stop them from alerting the police, and things get very out of hand and they have to run away, but they are able to get some beer. So you get this innocuous comment from Joe Latrulio about, oh, you look like Jimmy's brother. And like that will come up in a in a few minutes. But I think Joe Latrulio is another one where like now Brooklyn Nine Nine is such a big deal, people know who he is, but like he was another one who I, most of this cast, people whose faces you'd seen here and there, and you're like, oh that dude from that, and then some of them went on to 
get their names established, but he's good at doing. I mean, what? Sort of... So, so should, we, should we do a few of them? Like Joe Latrulio, Dave Franco shows up for a second. David Crumholtz shows up for a second. Clark Duke is in the background of like party scenes. Martin Starr is just hanging out in some of the party scenes. Yeah. Danny McBride is apparently at the party. Yeah, I, I did. I was him. trying to find him, but he is apparently in the background somewhere. Again, it's it's a lot of kind of just people they like to hang out with, and in three or four years' time, because obviously, like Danny McBride goes on to be one of the co-stars of so many of these movies going forward and Joe Latrulio is obviously it takes him a while he's one of those guys who was always a guy that I recognised yeah, he's, he's part ne- of the David Wayne of us, or whatever you want to call. It. <laughs> yeah, like I feel like I feel like the first time I kind of was it role models. Uh, yeah, he's in that. Yeah, he's the. I'm, leader just, I'm, of... just, I'm just trying to think when the first time I, I would have been like, oh yeah, that that guy. Like what movie I would have described him to before we got to Brooklyn Nine Nine. I definitely know people who've described Joe Latrulio as the guy that hits him with the car in Superbad, and it's like <laughs> oh, that's sad. And yeah, Kevin Corrigan just like beating his ass as soon as he gets to the party, and just like all these people that you'll see in all of their movies and this is of course the section of the movie where Seth gets perioded on and again I, d- I can't back up this kind of a claim but I feel like menstruation as something in a mainstream movie like this it, it wasn't really touched up- like it wasn't it was sort of a taboo topic and no like, it, pr- it probably it probably is kind of like one of the first movies that kind of like in a very male dominated movie I'm sure there are kind of movies written and directed and starring women that have done yeah. period jokes before this but this feels very much like the the kind of and I will still say like Seth's overreaction to it is very kind of like childish but it does ring true in that someone who is 17 years old and has a, a probably quite negative relationship to women of course not fundamentally not understanding what a period is kind of like <laughs> going to the insane lengths that he goes to to kind of yeah. <laughs> clean himself I like up. the guys that spot it they like he's like got it on his fingers and he's sniffing it and just and he just wipes it on his friend and he just laughs but like yeah Seth is like freaks the fuck out and seeks out this like industrial strength detergent in the basement and everything is. I love that they take a photo of it on like a terrible old flip phone. It's like, what are you going to tell people? It's like, oh yeah, this this marker blood on this guy, that was period. Like, yeah. Well, he goes, I have never seen that before in my life, so yeah. <laughs> and yeah, while he's off having this adventure, Evan gets, he ends up in this closed room with Martin Starr and David Krumholtz and others, and they think he is this guy, Jimmy's brother, and they're like, oh, you're the singer, right? And they get him to do this delightfully awkward little song, and... Is that a song that exists because they start yeah. singing along and I was like I can't yeah, bother yeah. to look up the lyrics it's playing on um, the cops radio later on I think it's good that he's not terrible but he's also not good you know like he's he's better than like a random person probably would be so he can get away with this scene but he's also not actually that good so it's, I mean they're also really fucking high they are they are and I, I really love that David Krumholtz is part of this little crew because like he is so known for a very different type of role but that he is like very much in with these guys and like does pop up in a lot of their movies I, that's always just made me laugh but he's, he's the dude from numbers you know and it's like oh here he is in this stoner comedy (laughs) but yeah the the party stuff fun good but meanwhile mclovin fogel is off with the cops and let's talk about it because right i i before before we get into that i want to run through christopher mintz plass's career Okay. Do you, so, right, do you like Christopher Mintz Plass? Uh, I don't hate him, but um... I, I, he's one of those people who like very much in the same way that Michael Cera gets pigeonholed. He gets pigeonholed so fast. Yep. <laughs> and cinema kind of like completely moves away from what he brings to things almost immediately. Role models. Where, like, <laughs> yeah, to the 
the like he like he follows up this with role models. He's in year one, and then Kickass is kind of like the final movie in that trilogy of him playing kind of like naive, stupid kind of characters, dorky voiced. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, to the point where by 2012, when he shows up in Pitch Perfect, it's a glorified cameo, oh, which yeah. <laughs> has no payoff whatsoever. Where he's just the kind of like announcer for the auditions and all the rest of it. And but then um, he like, landed he's... that sitcom with Joel McHale that was terrible about how bad millennials are. Yeah. Yep. They're all like. Um, be on my podcast, be on my podcast, and here we are podcasting about those podcast yeah. jokes. I mean, he's, he's in Neighbours 1 and 2, so obviously, like, Seth Rogen still got some affection for him. He's still oh, in, he is was he still one of, like, Dave Franco's friends? <laughs> he is one of the main ones. He's kind of like the three are um, Zac Efron, Chris Vince-Plass, and Dave Franco. Yeah. I kind of like the three of them. I think he's got a minimized role in number two, but that's purely because, yeah. like, they also introduce a whole load of girl characters. Oh, before I forget, you know, you've said, we've said um, Dave Franco's in it, like, twice now. Apparently, a lot of the people on the set didn't know he was James Franco's brother and were just like staring at him like what is it with this guy's face like why do I have this reaction (laughs) and like yeah it is wild to think that he has become I wouldn't say a star but you know a known name in his own right and like that he's in this tiny one line role in Superbad (laughs) anyway sorry Christopher yeah. Nesplat. I mean, he's in If Bill Street Could Talk last year, which, yeah. like, it's not, like, a big role, but, like, it's still, like, wow, this is not the kind of thing that I expect from, from Dave Franco no. at this point. I also do want to shout out the Steve Gutenberg's birthday episode of Party Down, which does feature Mint Plus, which is oh, fucking phenomenal. I really um, need to finish watching Party Down. I've seen, like, yeah. half of it. Yeah, um, if you if you want to watch just a good, funny episode of TV, the one where they go around Steve Gutenberg's house for his birthday is a treat. It <laughs> is wonderful, and, and Christopher Mint Plus plays... Martin Starr's co-writer on the script that he's, they're trying to write together. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it is a thing of beauty. Yes. Right, <laughs> cops. You're totally right. This has not aged well. There is a lot of stuff happening here with them, like, pulling guns on teenagers and coercing someone into silence and saying, oh, God, I wish, when asked if they'll get to shoot someone and just all of the stuff and admitting they're not ever going to find this thief so they're not even going to bother looking and drinking. It's all garbage. However, I I think it is just about saved by the fact that the joke is very clearly on, look at these dumb fuck fucking cops rather than like trying to I don't know like I don't think it was their intention to contribute to an anti-police sentiment but it doesn't exactly make police look good does it like it's it, they're not like saying like look how cool these guys are but yeah it is no, but uncomfortable. It, it, it kind of like the movie the movie kind of ends and they don't have any punishment they're just like oh yeah we just like <laughs> we blew up the cop car that yeah. we were driving around in and it's just it, it doesn't sit right in like, it, like I think the first time I kind of got that like reaction was like when they pulled the gun in the full bar yeah <laughs> yeah and like are pointing it at the drunk guy and it's just like the over escalation of force and i don't think it would sit it wouldn't sit as bad with me if it wasn't for the fact that like we didn't have an off-duty police officer pulling a gun on someone in a target a couple of weeks ago yeah and shooting two the, the a, a disabled person's two parents and killing a disabled person with schizophrenia Holy like fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and he was off duty and it's those kind of things where like because this is so true to real life and it kind of just kind of made me go like Okay, this. What if we just did put not... all of the police in prison and just started again? Would you miss <laughs> them? Just... Would you miss them? I mean, not to act like we we should just like control the American police force. It's just like just train them better. Yeah. Maybe actually have like proper gun training and proper and gun laws, psychological like, profiles up. and stuff. <laughs> There's some funny stuff I mean, like the... when they're like shit the cops when like more police start coming and they're sitting there drinking. I think that stuff plays well, but and like Hader and Rogan's like general charisma and like very clearly improvising almost every line as you can see each 
each of them like smirking or like barely reacting to something the others said because it wasn't in the script and like I think that helps but you're you're totally right like this hits different a decade later than it did when they, it first came out and you know people have been doing dumb cops on screen forever but they don't always pull guns on teenagers or in the middle of a bar and, and all these other things they're doing here so it's interesting to see again I, I got asked the question when I kind of like text the group of people who I like watch a lot of films with and kind of said like Superbad is playing very differently to me now than it did 12 years ago and someone did the kind of like rope like do you think it wouldn't get made nowadays and my immediate response was I mean no movie would get made the same way that it did 12 years ago no. nowadays but also I think yeah this movie can exist because Booksmart came out this year Yeah, and Booksmart plays in very similar realms to this in that it is still fundamentally nerdy children who who didn't interact with the rest of their school year going off to try and find a party and lots of sex lots of drugs lots of kind of like i had that written on my sort of like wrap up of like you know you can say what you want about this movie but i think it definitely did open some doors for some movies that might arguably better like a blockers or a book smart and then many other like comedies or like even like more indie style ones but like i feel super bad definitely led a movement I even if it's been it's, surpassed yeah it's it's the importance of because there have been teen movies that have been raucous but there's very much like a pullback on having teens be teens yes and there has been a push and like seth rogan's one of those guys where it's like like, no, we're going to make a movie with the actual way that teenagers actually talk and have it be full of swears and uh, misunderstandings about sex. And the, the way this movie plays nowadays isn't... You can argue it's maybe more cringe than inappropriate in that you look at it and you kind of go, like, is this reflecting what I was like when I was this age? <laughs> but then I also think... But is it also Would it also play the same way to a 17-year-old nowadays? Like, is this the 17-year-old experience or do we live in a world in which you look at the way that teenagers are kind of like more politically motivated and the way that they're kind of more yeah. they seem more switched on than we are nowadays would they look at this and go like especially with statistics coming out saying like like teenagers are having sex later and they're not having sex as quite rushed as kind of like a generation beforehand oh, that's really and, cool and, and like is it, is it coming down to a thing where like they're better educated or they've got more their head screwed on more correctly about like it's like the joke in 21 Jump Street where Channing Tatum has his idea about what it means to be a successful party happy teenager and he's, he's telling Jonah like you know you're gonna be a geek and then like Franco's like very like he's like oh that's really wasteful what about the environment man and like all that and it's like an exaggerated version of it but I think there is some true to lifeness there where like yeah and that's, that's still five years ago at this point so yeah. even even a generation beyond that I'm sure like we have children nowadays who are literally better orators and public speakers than the vast majority of politi politicians we stand Greta so <laughs> moving forward these two stories coalesce again because the cops hit Seth for the second time in the movie, Seth is hit by a car while they're, like, dicking around with flashlights and the boys flee and take their combined haul to the party where they get this hero's welcome. So, like, the reason he gets hit by a car is the two of them have gotten into a fight, Seth and, and Evan, and we are seeing these sort of insecurities come to the fore of, like... Because, I mean, a, big, a huge point of the plot is that, like, Seth hasn't gotten into a very good school and Evan and, and Fogel have both gotten into Dartmouth and are going to be roommates and, like, Seth is... Very very clearly threatened by this and like he, he finds this out around this point as well that like and he's just like, like you know you're betraying me like you'd rather hang out with Fogel than you would with me and he feels he's being abandoned by Evan and then Evan you know fires back with like well what do you want me to do like just not go to this school I got into and like 
I mean, he then hits him with the very, like, harsh thing of, like, you know, I'm not gonna be slowed down by you anymore, and that kind of stuff. And these feel like very real feelings that you have around this age, where, like, some people are very not good with change in a social group. Like, I have a friend who won't listen to this, so I don't care. He was always, like, disgustingly averse to change. Like, he wanted all of these people that, all of us that went to the same school to still hang out when we got to, like, a college, and, like, he didn't like it when anyone new came into the group and if anyone from our group wanted to go hang out somewhere else he was very like wow what the fuck and like he just always wanted things to always stay the same and like, is he is he that one friend that kind of yes. like never left the hometown didn't go to a university or anything like that far uh, away no, he did do that but i think very reluctantly like he went to oh, his girlfriend changed which uni she was applying to to go to like one near him and they lived together for like the first two years yeah he's very like yeah is i mean he now like- lives in london so i hope that has forced him to self-actualize a lot more because otherwise he's gonna die but yeah this feels very like authentic and like you do kind of feel like yeah there's always people where like you you've existed in this especially in american systems where like i mean in the uk you can do seven year stint of being with the same people you can do a two-year stint at the very end before you go to university in america it's a four-year stint with the same people and i think it is that kind of thing where like this is what you've known these are the people who you've literally gone through the biggest growth period of your entire life in kind of like the shortest period of time and you kind of do want to hang on to that for a while if you're moving on to a college but then um, I don't know if it's the same for you but like I realised that when I moved to university it's like oh no I was with these people because it was location based and these were the hundred people yeah. who just happened to live within a mile of my house that totally. um, went like, to the same school as me. You romanticise I think friendships with certain people and you come to realise like you don't know each other at all anymore and like you weren't the same people before and like you know maybe you did have a lot in common once but you don't now and like to try and force yourselves to still be friends is weird and like they're not going all that way and saying that like Evan and Seth will not be friends anymore because we I mean but but we are categorically we know that they are still friends exactly like that's the rare thing where like there are people who can say that they're still friends with that person who they knew when they were like two years old but that isn't a common thing like most of my close most of my close friends nowadays I'm a lucky one in that most of my close friends are actually still university friends yeah whereas Um, most of mine are people I worked with and like when you move through the various places I've been like my number of the number of people I still speak to from school is a small number sixth form I feel it's now actually I, I reconnected with more people from school and as you go further through forward to like university those numbers have gotten smaller for me so I did actually you know rekindle some friendships from school but yeah generally the experience is the further forward you go the less friends you're bringing with you on that journey but most of mine now are people I've worked with so it's what happens and it, it, it sucks and uh, like this feels like a very real raw argument where like they just don't have the tools at this point to express how they well they, they are kind of expressing themselves it's just i don't know there's a lot of like fears and trepidations that they're not quite capable of of, of dealing with and you also get the uh, i really like when seth rogan just cannot catch michael Sierra and he's like he's the fastest kid alive uh, <laughs> good stuff we'll skip over the bit where bill hader pulls a gun on the two unarmed teenagers yep makes them hold hands on the floor a high quality image of which is sitting in my dissertation of them holding hands on the floor yeah it, it plays very differently um i do like the bit where mclovin comes out the car smoking the cigarette acting like the coolest <laughs> 
this motherfucker alive. And then he recognizes the two of them and they all just sprint off. I love how fast Michael Cera runs as well. Like, he's got that look about him that he's just yeah. running forever. Well, uh, and I think it just kind of heads us into the kind of, like, the final yes. stretch of the movie. Yeah, they, Which is still, like, five minutes long. So they reach the party and it, things appear to initially be going really well for all three of them with their crushes. Like, McLovin is very much the sort of odd one out of the main two, but, like, there is this girl, he's, like, followed around college, uh, the school. That's and a little bit creepy. It is, it is, but it's also realistic, unfortunately. Yeah, things appear to be going well for all three of them, but then it goes south for all of them, and the cops arrive to break the party up, and Seth has to carry Evan away. So, Evan and Becca... This one feels very, very real to me because we as an audience can tell throughout the whole movie, Becca likes him back, but he is completely oblivious to this until her friend comes up to him and is like, dude, like, you've almost fucked it up. She's been saying all night she's gonna, like, get with you and, like, she's clearly far too drunk for anything to start happening now, but he, his solution is, I'll get really drunk. And that will completely help with the fact that I'm I mean, clearly... All, all, their, all their solutions is, is yes. to get really drunk because that's what that's what Seth does as well. Is, yes, like, but... He's, like, he's a, but Evan was like, a, he had a resistance to that plan. He thought it was dumb, and he was. He even says like, "Oh, good luck trying to get back a, uh, trying to get Jules drunk enough to sleep with you." But then, like, when he is confronted with it, and it's like, "Right, well, she's drunk, and I feel weird about this," and he just caves to, "Well, you get drunk then." And then you see he has a very difficult time getting drunk because it's not for everyone. Like, as someone who hasn't had a drink in like twelve years now, drinking isn't for everyone, and it's it's kind of sad like watching them just like fumble around, and it's also very. I'm sure this actress would find this scene very cringy to watch back but like it feels very true in how not smooth any of it is and just like they're bad at kissing each other and him being like can we keep kissing when she like brings up the idea of giving him a blowjob and like again that feels like something that like for some people that is just can we take it a bit slower and a traditional thing is to like and like she even says it and it's like it bothers me a little bit when she's like why do you have to be such a little bitch about it but like yeah it's it's, it's sad that, like, so often that is what men are expected to, you know, just be fully confident. It's the I mean, women it, it, it's are... the same thing for both of them, is that they're both expected to yes. kind of, like, perform in this way. Like, she's she has a crush on him, and she thinks this is the way that you get a man. And he's kind of like, oh, no, this makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to do this right now. I've, I'm not nearly as drunk as you are, as is immensely shown by the fact that she throws up on the pillow next to him. Yeah, exactly. And it feels, again, like one of these things where, like, I've been in a situation where it's like, if only, like, it were half an hour earlier or an hour earlier like because I think by the time he arrives she's already too drunk yeah because he's he spent so long trying to get this bottle of alcohol because he thinks this bottle of alcohol is what he needs to get her into bed mm-hmm. that by the time he shows up she's drunk everything else in the house at this point yeah. and and it's like you know if he'd just gotten here earlier and she wasn't fully drunk but just like a little bit less like awkward then yeah maybe this would have gone better for both of them but yeah she's they have gone past that point of no return but like people do this all the time and not in a like <laughs> college frat party way but you know just get that moment you're like ah too late oh well meanwhile seth and jules like they go outside and talk and like he tries to kiss her and she's like whoa you're drunk and i don't drink and that was his entire plan like he makes this comment repeatedly about we could be these mistakes that they make at a party and like you see him say it like you know look at me look at you you would never get with me while sober and like again well less clearly than becca but like she seems to like i mean she's she laughs at his jokes later on in the movie like when they're when they're out with the friends he kind of like it does that awful 
like, oh, the you thing scratched about my, my back. back is it's yeah, you scratch, <laughs> you scratch my back, I scratch your back, and it's just like such an awful line. But she laughs at it, and like yeah. it is terrible and disgusting because he doesn't know how to talk to girls. No. I think that's a fundamental thing they do get right with this movie. And I mean, Emma Stone's obviously kind of more of a standout than Martha McIsaac um, in that. I don't think I've ever seen her anything since. Nope. But they both that they nail the conversations kind of circling around the ideas of consent and yeah. what girls actually want. Totally. And I think it's I think it's what elevates kind of like the third act of the movie is yeah. that like after so many dick jokes and um, stuff like that is they come back to it and it's like no one apart from McLovin has sex. Yeah. McL- but all the sex that they have is like done with enthusiastic consent. Jonah Hill gets shown up for the way that he kind of like approaches it, which mm-hmm. I think is a good move. Yep. And it just it just makes it all sit a bit better than yeah. if this movie ended with a triumphant moment of them all <laughs> having sex the day after they or the day before they graduate high school. With Oz having sex on a gazebo. Anyway, yeah, this last third I think is the is the real strength of the movie for me, and like uh, this is where it feels the most realistic. And even with cops showing up at the party to break it up while McLovin is inside of a woman, and the fact that this actor was seventeen and thus his parents had to be there while he's being like, oh my god, it's in. <sighs> Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, I think that makes whenever he would eventually either have sex, unless he had sex before that point, a hell of a lot more less awkward. Yeah, true. It's, a, it's, it's, all... it's fine. It's fine. I've had the worst version of this. <laughs> totally. The cops like say, "Oh, we knew we're not fucking stupid. We know you're not 25," which makes it worse in many ways because they <laughs> still took him out and they trash the car and shoot it up and you know, it's fun. But mm. maybe so, they just agree that the American it should be 18 rather than 21 and this was their like subtle way of yeah maybe I don't know if it's 21 <laughs> in Canada probably I mean we can get into the whole like how prohibition yes. fucked up the age drinking <laughs> is in America and all the rest of it but anyway my favourite scene two scenes in the movie Seth carries Evan literally out like in his arms and they go to Evan's basement and they just share this really nice one to one and like they're in the sleeping bags like you said and they just sit there and just tell each other that they love each other and again like this should be the stuff that people remember about this movie that like it's this shockingly honest real exhibition of like male male platonic friendship and like yeah people should tell their friends of the same gender i love you like that's not on the commentary for the movie they even said that like this scene in all test screenings made like the alpha dudes really uncomfortable and like people were expecting them to kiss because they're so drunk or something and it's like no we're not gonna do that for you this isn't gonna be that kind of comedy they just are really nice about it and like admit when you were on vacation I missed you and stuff like that and it's and Evan admitting hey I don't want to live with Fogel I'm just really terrified of living with a stranger and hey strong relate it's just really lovely and I wish there was like more of this throughout and it's not that it's devoid of it but like I think they really I think I think they do it because it needs to hit home that bit harder when they do have this like emotional heart-to-heart when they are drunk and the way they treat it as being this is their one night stand afterwards in that obviously they've progressed in their relationship and they've been able to have this conversation but like the next day it's like them getting dressed and acting awkward around each other yeah I like that they play that like it's an awkward one night stand or something where he's yeah. like Seth's trying to like hustle out of there he's like yeah I better go have a fire go and like yeah but then they but then they do that thing which I've definitely done after one night stands where it's like <laughs> where it's like oh do you, uh, you want to hang out and then you just kind of like go hang out for the day and it's like what are we doing here like are we you feel like you're it'd be a bit shitty to like completely be like well see you never but then it's also like there's clearly nothing to actually say from here yeah. you get him like half-heartedly be like 
your mum's got huge tits. And it's like, they did all this at the beginning, like you said, but like, it's played so much differently here. Where like, now they've, they've said what they've said and it's just sort of like, this is me trying to instigate normality, but like, neither of them can just forget what was said. And like, the next day at the mall, like, they run into Becca and Jules. And I think it's a little bit contrived that we have not established any kind of friendship between Becca and Jules. But I mean, the are. whole reason is because it's because Becca goes to like, I need to apologise for throwing up in your comforter. Yes. It's, it's, it's like it's like the whole reason that they're together is like Becca feels guilty for throwing up even though you look around that party and like well the police showed up and there's a lot of alcohol going around there's probably worse things that have been broken or happened and Jules should definitely be at home tidying up in case her parents come home very soon <laughs> yeah and like she's there to buy makeup to cover up the black eye that Seth gave her by headbutting her while trying to kiss her again because that's the thing he tries to kiss her while drunk and then they have the little heart heart and then he tries again but he just sort of passes out on her instead but her reaction is immediately go like what the fuck and just walk off rather than like no sympathy whatsoever just leaves him on the floor where he's like kind of passed out and like, I, like, does, he, does he try again or does he literally just pass out I read it as he was kind of leaning in but he does pass out yeah I don't know her being like well do you want to buy me some makeup and stuff and like Evan is also there to buy a comforter to go off to college so it's like oh we can both get one and oh coincidentally one of each of us drove and it's the right one for each pair and you see them both kind of mend these fences with these girls and like the, it ends with them going off with the girls and like the last shot in the movie well no the last shot in the movie is obviously Jonah and, and Emma Stone just walking off down the mall but like to see them share like a lingering look towards each other while not paying it's, attention it's, it's very much like the, the, the final shot of like a romantic comedy exactly. kind of like we would expect this to end in them both kissing the girls or or like you said in a rom-com you'd see like the man and the woman like looking at each other like what could have been but I, I can't fucking find it but somewhere in here it's like but this movie has never been about the love between men and women it's about the, the love story between Evan and Seth and like that's a core strength of a lot of the Apatow movies is that a lot of them are, theme, are friendships between same gender yeah a lot of them though far more misogynistic in the way they handle I mean that, that's, like... that's the whole thing is there is there is a low, a low level misogyny that kind of like exists yeah. in a lot of these movies I, I think um... it's slightly lower in this one which might be why it's one of the better ones like you look at Knocked Up and how they pretty much Catherine Heigl some of the stuff she said about the experience of filming it it's like whoa that's very much not cool that like they pretty much ostracized yeah like I think, and... I think the ones that kind of like stand out are the ones that kind of put the relationship side first yeah. like Pineapple Express being like just a relationship between these two guys plays better Bridesmaids where the re- where the relationship is secondary to like main plot and obviously it's going to be inherently less misogynistic because it is written and <laughs> written and starring women yeah of course uh, but like yeah like it's, it's the ones that kind of like pivot the relationship to kind of like the back foot I feel that kind of come off a little bit better well the next chapter in my dissertation is about the movie I Love You Man and how that is essentially the exact structure of a rom-com but he starts the movie out in a relationship and it's instead him trying to find a friend in Jason Segel and like yeah I feel this this was definitely a movement and like you know embracing that same sex love and like you can't get away from the whole like boys club aspect that is also happening but I feel this one super bad in particular is generally okay about it you get stuff like Seth referring to one of Jules's friends as like oh one of her stupid fucking friends or whatever it's like she's just a woman dude like it's not just she didn't come across as particularly stupid to me but anyway yeah I think this this closing stretch and particularly these final two scenes this is what I think of when I think of the movie like it comes to me as like that was like a surprisingly sweet way to end a movie that is ostensibly about how do we get laid real quick 
and we wouldn't be talking about this if that stuff wasn't there. Like, if this was just a slightly smarter than average sex comedy, then yeah, very funny, but bye. I mean, bye. yeah, like, I mean, what, what, when when does, is it Sex Trip or whatever it is to come out, like, a year later? Sex Drive? <laughs> with Clark Duke what, and, and... Yeah, yeah. The, one, the one with the MGMT songs in the trailer. Yes. That, like, for some reason, like, in, like, drilled those songs into my head, like, I can never not relate those two, those songs to um, <laughs> Sex Drive, which is not a good movie and learns, like, basically every single wrong lesson from this thing, although there is a funny James Marsden performance in it. Yes. Oh, he is very good in that, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> do we want to wrap up Lovin' and the Cops? It's very secondary. It's like giving those three something to do in the background of the actual crux of the story. Yeah, I, I do. I do. So I, I am conflicted. The bit where they drag McLovin out of the house and like he's acting like a crazy person because he wants to like get the, the, the kudos for like being a crazy person. And yeah. then the guy who spits on Seth earlier spits on the cop and hits him with the <laughs> nice stick. Hits him with the thing and it's like, this is police brutality, but also like I enjoy. The, the setup to this gag, which is like they then dejectedly go back to McLovin and he's like, like, like gyrating around, going, like, I'm a crazy man, I'm a crazy man. And they've just like fully laid this guy out. Like, <sighs> it makes me uncomfortable, but also, like, I, I appreciate the kind of like Look, comedic you, rhythms of this scene. You spit on a cop, and if he just hits you once and walks away, I'm not that mad at that. Like, <laughs> it's not like he like wrestled him to the ground and like. And then, and then they blow up the car, they, they have do. like their emotional like denouement is the three of them being drunk idiots together. Yeah. Break yourself, um, it's fine it's just kind of like it, it feels like I wonder what would happen if they excised the cop stuff from this movie and had more time with the two of them kind of hanging out because this is a movie that's kind of like three different extended scenes yeah. really yeah I feel the cops are there I think that's the stuff that like is easy, more easily swallowed by like a larger mainstream audience and like you know this is the trailer friendly stuff and in a world where Seth Rogen like I kind of don't want to see him in Jonah's role in place, like a younger version. But like, I feel the cops only exist because Seth Rogen still wanted to be in the movie, but like, couldn't be the kid, the fucking kid. And then I don't know what you do with McLovin, but. <sighs> whatever but yeah I, I think it's important to acknowledge this for its place in in like affecting how cinema plays out from here in terms of this genre at least so yeah I mean I, I mean this genre obviously dies a death a few years <laughs> later like they, they, nobody's making this in fact this genre has kind of moved more TV like Netflix HBO are the ones making this kind of thing like Apatow, like Apatow has had crashing in girls on HBO yeah it, it's weird that this was like one of the like most buzzed about movies of 2007 I mean mm. it opened in the UK it barely opened number two behind the second week of Run Fuck Boy Run like about three million dollars um, um, <laughs> not even a good Simon Pegg film not even a good Simon Pegg film but then he is kind of like national darling at this point really yes he's coming off at fuzz but I mean 2007 this movie does well for like what it is for an R-rated comedy movie for this to be like nipping at the heels of like top 30 movies of the year yeah. is is really impressive I think it obviously does a lot better in America because yeah. it is speaking so much more to domestic Abilities. Yeah. Well, thank God Todd Phillips was there to rescue adult R-rated comedies, uh, which was <laughs> hangover not long after. Well, there you go. A slightly out there pick for the list. We have something far more conventional coming next week with No Country for Old Men, in which I will not be reading from a 10,000-page document that on the first page features JD and Turk from Scrubs looking lovingly into each other's eyes. So, Wow, you included pictures in your dissertation. Oh, there's like, so I many have... pictures! There's, like, uh, there's Seth Rogen holding 
holding James Franco while walking out of a burning building. Yeah, Blades of Glory is in there. It's not a good piece of writing, and I'm going to go rewrite that for the next three weeks. Uh, <laughs> but until then, go to entertherealworld.com, go to soundcloud.com, such Mike and Matt. We have no country for old men coming for you next week. I'm excited to discuss my favourite Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. That's a tease. Well, there you go then. Look forward to that, everyone. But, you know, there were a lot of movies in 2007. Are there any movies left for us in general, Ben? Will there be movies? Um, your dissertation should have killed movies, but it didn't. Oh, thank God. <laughs> this has been therapeutic for me as well. So thank you, Ben, and thank you, everyone else. Bye. And I did.